Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? If you ever visit one of the Mormon temples or one of their uh, historical sites where they'll tell you about their history, you'll get to sit through one of their sales pitches for their religion. Uh, Everyone's got one these days, you know. Uh, In theirs, they rely on that verse pretty heavily. They believe that the burning in the bosom, the feeling that it must be right, is the sign that Joseph Smith is the true prophet of God who has completed the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to bother trying to dismantle that nonsense in front of you today. It is nonsense, and anyone who wants to look into it can. Mormons are very nice people, and they're wrong about who Jesus is. But what you should know, what you should know, is that just because someone took that text and did something wrong with it doesn't mean that it doesn't tell you that the way you know you're a Christian is because you believe what the Bible says. Because when the scriptures are open, you care. So that's what I want to do today. I want to open 1 Timothy, chapter 6. I care about this book a lot. I've been studying Timothy since I knew that I was going to be a pastor and had the ability to look at it in Greek. I don't claim to know everything about it, but I guess if there's a book I know in the Bible well in Greek, it would be this one. And what I can tell you is that when he says, teach and urge these things at the end, he ain't kidding around. He ain't kidding around. He's gone through a complete list minus the things the Lutherans want him to talk about. So he doesn't go through instructions on baptism. He doesn't go through instructions on the Lord's Supper. He's figuring Timothy knows that stuff. He's figuring that's so established in the church everywhere he's gone, who would question those things? But what he wants to talk about is what makes a person not a Gentile and not a Jew, but a Christian instead. What's the uniting factor that pulls you out of your ethnic heritage, whatever it is, even if it is your religion? What are those things? And in chapter 1, he establishes that his goal of you knowing this is love. He's very clear. He combines the idea of pure teaching, pure doctrine, the scriptures, and love. And he even makes the claim that if you don't really have Jesus, you don't know what love is. The best you can manage is the ability to use the world for your benefit in God's sight. That's the best you can do. To imagine that religion is a means for getting stuff. He's going to talk about that specifically in chapter 6. I'll come back to it. But what he emphasizes at the start is that not even love can be what binds us together. Not even our desire to care about our neighbors and their good can be enough to overcome the trials, the thorns, and the evils of this age. But what can overcome that is a king who's not dead and will never die again. His love for you, his enemy overcomes all. Chapter 1 is at pains to announce this, and I won't go further into that, but I will say that chapter 2 becomes about what our life as a people looks like now. There are some who I respect, Lutheran pastors, who will say this is only about worship. I think they're wrong. I don't think that they're wrong and that it's not about worship. I think that everything is worship. Everything is worship. One way or the other, you're putting your heart, your soul, your mind, your spirit into something. And either you're doing it saying, thank you, Jesus, or you're doing it saying, thank you, me. And thank you, me is always worship of the devil, if you didn't know that. 
So he wants us to not be like that. So he talks about how men in every place should lift holy hands in prayer. And we debate about whether or not we should raise our hands when we sing or whether or not you have to hold your hands a certain way. That's what Christians have done with that. When all he's saying is don't be violent and pray instead. Believe that it's possible that your God might act for you in massive ways. So rather than taking it all into your own hands every time something goes wrong, even when it's your job, stop. And remember who stands behind you, who gave you the very problem in front of you. So at least as you engage the thing you don't want, you're not going to do it cursing. But you do it with a tongue that blesses. I'll tell you where I get tested on this one every time. That's why I spill coffee. My wife gets tested too. It's probably worse for her. Uh, she, she's learned to just know it's like, it's like me spilling holy water everywhere or something, right? I'm like, I'm leaving my grace behind in the coffee stains in the car or whatever. I don't know. I, I, every time it happens, I'm like, okay, Jesus, what am I? I want to curse. I want to be angry. I want to say this is wrong. What should I learn? I should learn that I shouldn't carry the coffee. Well, I'm not going to learn that yet, Jesus. Well, then you're going to learn that you're going to spill coffee sometimes, Jonathan, and you're going to deal with it. Okay. But as I walk through that in my head, notice what I've had to do as a person. And if this is weird, I mean, when I talk like this, I get it. But I, I'm growing as a person, and I'm not planning to stop anytime soon. And I used to get really angry about spilling coffee, and I don't now. I think it's pretty neat. I'd love you to have the same opportunity. And what it means is that you stop and you ask, why was that a blessing? I know it doesn't look like it. It never feels like it. But if you can stop and ask and remember that everything Jesus gives you is, even though you can't find an answer, I mean, the blessing is I get to clean it. Okay, that's my blessing right now. Yay, me, right? Uh, that's better than being angry. That's better than being angry. And that's what Paul wants to exhort men to as they lift holy hands in prayer, that they would pray without ceasing. I don't know if uh, anyone's been to the bathroom yet today, but I uh, undertook a little, uh, what would I call this, um, rebellion. I decorated the bathrooms. You should check them out. I went to Hobby Lobby. I bought stuff and I hung it on the walls. I think you'll like it. Um, I tried not to make it make you feel guilty. I've been in way too many church bathrooms where what's on the wall says you're not good enough. And so I tried not to do that. Although, guys, you do have law in your bathroom. The law in your bathroom says pray continuously. Pray continuously. There's also a piece of art that looks like crosses, but it's not. But we'll get a crucifix up there, and it'll look real great eventually. And then by the paper towels, there's... Nice piece with some trees to remember renewable resources and, of course, three trees, three crosses. You can think of your Lord's death on your behalf. Ladies, uh, now I don't remember yours as well. I let my wife pick some of those to make sure that I didn't do it wrong. Yeah. Um, can you remember, honey, what the things on the wall say in the ladies' bathroom? Sorry, on the spot. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken, so you might pray for your family while you're in there and maybe changing the baby and all that. And... You are fearfully and wonderfully made as well. Wonderful things to remember. Why did I do that? The law of Moses says to write the word of God on your walls. And if you think that by doing that, you will gain God's favor, you're wrong. But the fact is, if you put God's word on your walls, you're going to see God saying awesome stuff to you all the time. And so I wanted to do that here for us today because today is a new day for us as a congregation we got new service schedules we have a great weekend we got music going everywhere where it hasn't been before but don't lose in all of this what's the real purpose here this is not a social club 
This is a place of prayer wherein we believe that the living king of the universe represented by that statue over there, but actually going to be one with you in body and blood, according to bread and wine in a little while, he's listening and he's in charge. And whatever else is going on out there, all the reasons you could be afraid today, and I know you came to church with worries, anxieties, and fears. Every single one of them out there is in his hand exactly and has been moved to this very moment so that you might trust him yet again. And he will not leave you wanting in that. Let's, let's keep going then with the rest of Timothy. Uh, chapter 3, if you ever want to accuse me of something and try to get me thrown out of my office, please use chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. I will feel you have been faithful in listening to me if you do that, even if you attack me, because I should be held accountable for this. And if I'm not doing it, you need to do something about it. All right? I'm not going to go into that now, but take that where it goes. Don't miss how at the end of chapter 3, though, after he's given all these instructions for our life in prayer, for women, not necessarily trying to be in charge all the time. That's chapter two again, and letting the men lead. For pastors, really being restricted to what all Christians should really strive to be. After all that, don't miss that he says. In chapter three, in the middle of the whole book, there's something else at work beside do this, do this, this is right, do this, this is right, be like this. There's something else. The mystery of godliness, I'll make you look at it. Uh, it is great. It is verse 16. You can maybe remember this if you know John 3.16. Well, 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Godliness. You said bet on piety. It's going to come up in chapter 6. Great indeed is the mystery of this thing. What is the mystery of godliness? What is the mystery of piety? He was manifested in the flesh. Notice how it all culminates not in you but in him him he is the mystery of godliness in this age even for us so that while i certainly will be an active thinking aggressive christian i will never believe for a second i did it i will be a passive begging humble slave knowing that he was manifested in the flesh he was vindicated in the spirit he was seen by angels he was proclaimed among the nations he was believed on in the world and he was taken up into glory it's kind of the end of the first half of the book with all of that proclamation that he is our king. In chapter 4 and 5, he goes into quite a bit more detail about what our life should look like. There's information there for you if you are a widow, or if you are a young man, or if you are an old man, or if you're a young woman. There's, there's things where it says, be like this, hunger for this, pursue this. It also gives warnings that in the last days, that is basically every day since Jesus ascended, there will be people who just don't want to hear what the Bible says, and they will make their own beds and eventually lie in them. That's chapter 4. But again, we'll, we'll kind of touch on all these ideas now. We're going to come back in chapter 6, and we're going to go very detailed, slowly, through chapter 6. But let all that build. So when he says, teach and urge these things, he's given us something to pursue. He's given us something to be. And it's really, I mean, you know, you've heard me talking about the Psalms and Proverbs this year a lot, I hope, and trying to encourage you to get into those Proverbs. Just open that thing, read one, write a thought on it before you head out the door. Do it every day, it will change your life. Well, that same kind of reality is what he says here at the end of chapter six. You man of God, do this, see these things, understand. Before you attack that though, remember, this is not about you proving to God anything. You stand here already bought. You're here because you've already been called. 
He put a hook in your nose, up into your brain, down into your heart, and he dragged your body here, telling you, you believe this now. Now, once you can acknowledge that, it's pretty good. I stand on it. It doesn't move. It stays there. I don't have to worry if he's my God. I don't have to prove that I'm justified. I can just know I'm his servant. And then when I fail, when I mess up, when I do the wrong thing, the amazing thing is I can go, I'm sorry. That was wrong. I won't do that. It's a superpower. Let me tell you, it's a superpower living in grace. Living in grace, though, doesn't mean sitting back and doing nothing. It means knowing the liars are out there and fighting their lies with the truth. Okay, so that's my lead in. Here we go. First Timothy chapter six, verse two B and moving. Teaching us these things. That's what we just did. Verse three to 10 is going to be about those who don't listen. Verse 11 and following is you who are listening. Okay, hear that too. Three through 10 though. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. It's going to stop there. It's a, a verse and a half. So teaches a different doctrine is all one word there in the Greek. Heterodidaskale. You can hear a word that we use as Lutheran teachers, pastors, heterodoxy in that word. Heterodoxy. Uh, hetero, you probably know that from another word, heterosexual, as opposed to say homosexual. But the front end, hetero and homo, has nothing to do with sex. That You have to put sex on the end of the word to make it mean that. Hetero and homo just means different and same. Different and same. So heterodoxy is different doxy. What's the doxy? Glory. A different glory. Don't let anyone come with a different glory than Jesus Christ. That's what it's about here. And who does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what are the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, nothing but the scriptures themselves what we've received from the hands of the apostles. Don't listen to someone who comes with that teaching, who, uh, excuse me, I'm saying that poorly. The end of the verse three, this person, the negative person, the person who does not believe will reject the teaching that accords with godliness. And there's that word eusebeon again, godliness. What's that mean? Let's talk about the opposite of it, uh, of it to help it make sense. That's the next section in verse four. He is puffed up, puffed up. The word there is tetufotai, tetufotai, which means not only is it something he is, but it's something he was. The style of the word uh, it means that it's a past thing that's ongoing and it won't stop, this kind of person. He is tetufotai, and it means literally puffed up like a billowing thunderhead cloud, this huge, huge, big cloud. Uh, but the meaning of the word is less about its size and more about how that kind of big cloud, if you're in it, you can't see through it. When the storm comes, everything gets dark. So it's about being blind or being deluded with a D, not diluted. That means like watered down, but deluded. That means cloudy, covered up, unable to see. Deluded. Now, all that means proud, but what I love... Hi, Hugh. You're catching attention. <laughs> um, what I love most about the word is that it has another meaning beyond just proud. So it's a proud, clouded, blinded, and then finally, mentally ill. Mentally ill is what Paul says a person who does not agree with the sound words of Jesus is. Let's just take a step back, okay? Every Christian, Paul, excuse me, every non-Christian, Paul just said, every non-Christian 
is mentally ill with regard to religion. They are mentally ill with the need to worship false gods and themselves. That's quite a claim. It's profound even. It's like they're all zombies. Only it's not a joke. Like they're running around, eating, taking, making sure they're safe. Ah! And they don't see that they're worshiping wood and stone and wind and star. And they don't believe that the God of those things sends fire upon those who do wickedness. That's where we live right now. Huh? Now the good news is you're in an ark, right? What God does to the evildoer, he does to the evildoer and the good alike. The punishments come to societies as a whole. And Christians know the best thing to do is what the Proverbs say. A wise man sees trouble coming and he hides himself. So what do we do? We keep being faithful. We don't lift hands in violence. We don't seek to have our own way. We commit ourselves to not being puffed up with conceit and instead giving ourselves to the words that accord with godliness. More of that coming. But remember then, those who don't have the Bible, they're living based on whatever else they want to live on. There's a million stories out there right now to get afraid of. They are puffed up with conceit and understand nothing. You should by no means trust them. The fact that you would turn them on in a box and let them talk to you for hours, you're nuts. You're nuts. They're liars. They're trying to sell you stuff. What are you doing? What are you doing? I mean, turn on sometimes. Know what's going on, I guess. But hours? Why? What are they giving you but fear? They understand nothing. And that's my contention. Not that TV's bad, but that the people on it understand nothing. And so if you listen to them, you will be like them. Having an unhealthy craving for controversy. Does that sound familiar? I'm not talking about in the church, right? I'm just talking about our country. For quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. Democracy. Constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. That's the problem. We don't see. We don't see other people. All we see is our need and our fear drives us to protect it. And we go, rawr, rawr, and around us, chaos. Chaos comes. And again, this is because we imagine, end of verse 5, that godliness is a means of gain. To believe in justification in Jesus is to believe that your body is a corpse that will go to the dust. People who don't know that try not to have it happen with religious zeal. They give everything to not dying or making sure when they do, it's on their terms. And as a result, believing that religion is a way to get something, they end up doing harm to others around them. Christianity and Christ comes along and says, my kingdom is not of this world. You're going to follow me and die and get nothing out of it in this world. And you're actually going to be thankful for it by the time it's over. And everyone goes, why would you believe that? And he goes, fine, kill me. I'll show you. Hmm? Because, verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. If you actually have Yosebeon, you believe Jesus has risen from the dead, then you do get something out of being a Christian. It absolutely gives you a faith to endure anything. But if you come thinking you're going to buy that, you're not going to get it. If you come thinking you're going to barter for that or grow it out of your own heart, you're not going to get it. You come crawling with nothing and know who you are, nothing, you're going to be glad with whatever you get. And that's contentment which is great gain. To know, as Job taught me this year very, very clearly, verse 7, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. Lakak! 
Joshua Lakak, Joshua Nathan, that Jesus Christ takes, Jesus Christ gives. Blessed be the name of Jesus Christ. Job's prayer after his family dies. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. And there, if you want something to feel guilty about, <laughs> right? Probably not content with just food and clothing these days. I'm with you. I'm with you. First world living, first world troubles. But, well, 2020 has been a wake-up call, hasn't it? Certain things do matter a lot more than what you thought you needed in your bucket list. I'm learning that's a good thing. And certainly to have the goal to be content with food and clothing, well, that's nothing for a grace-bought son of God to feel guilty about. God knows where your state is. He doesn't expect you to already have stood up, but he does want you to see it's good. It's good to be content. And it's good to see, verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. How hard that one is to believe, is it not? Isn't that why we all got to go off to college so we can make money and live well? Huh? That's what I thought. That's why I went. Huh? It's to be rich. And I did. I fell into temptation. I fell into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge, well, my friends and myself into ruin and destruction. That was a long time ago. But I still find that the, the hunger for tomorrow's bread is a pretty powerful lie, really. And to not be content today, to think I have to have tomorrow ready across the board always. Excuse me, but that's a hell of a God. It's an awful God. It's a hellish God. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils, as it says. One of the probably most quoted but misquoted Bible verses. When you hear this one quoted, they won't quote it right. They'll say the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils, as opposed to the root of all kinds of evils. Me. They'll say that love of money is the root of evil. There it is. And it's not. It's not the root of evil. But many kinds of evil come from it. What's the root of evil? Um, hmm, doubt is the root of evil. Disbelief is the root of evil. Uh, but let's move on with love of money. It is through this craving. These are terrifying words in verse 10. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That is, your love of money can get you thrown into hell, even though you were a fully believing Christian. Straight up. And when that happens, you don't see it coming. You don't see the love of money coming. It starts small and becomes big. It's its own kind of drunkenness. You know, it seems good on the weekends, and then suddenly it's your entire life. Now, how do you fight this? Daily bread is the answer. Don't go home and make a list about how you're not going to love money anymore. Pray the Lord's Prayer. And when you get to daily bread, say, Lord Jesus, help me believe that. Help me believe that. That daily bread is sufficient. Help me believe that your forgiveness is there for when I do pierce myself with pain. Yeah? I mean, hear this as a warning for what it is. But don't put yourself in that box because you're not. You're here to receive the body and blood of Jesus, which means that everything that's going to be said next about this man of God is about you. You've had the warnings about what your pastor should silence. And now you're going to get the promises about what you should expect God to do with you between now and the day of judgment, whether you like it or not, because you do. <laughs> you like it and you want it. Verse 11, as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Run away from evil. Don't give in to it. Refuse to stay beaten down. When you fall down, get back up again. Believe that God rose from the dead and he's the one who has inspired you. Flee these things. 
Now, I'm going to say this this morning, and I'm going to try to never say this again. I might, but I'm going to try not to. I want this to be something we know as a congregation. So I don't have to say it every time as if it's some ghost from the past, because it is a ghost from the past. That when it says, you man of God, he's talking to Timothy by himself. He's talking to the entire congregation to whom this letter would be read, which includes both men and women. He's talking to the entire church on the earth, which includes both men, women, and children. In this, every woman should be able to hear themselves in the phrase, you man of God, without needing me to tell you, you're included in this. The, the masculine chauvinists have kept it away from you, but now you can know that you're going to be a Christian too. I don't need to explain that to you. You know this. You are one of us. We are Christianity. And what we will be, we don't know yet, but we will be like him. And man and woman will neither be dismissed or pushed away, nor will the battle of the sexes even be a thing. So when he calls you a son of God baptized into Jesus, own it. Because the rest are zombies. You're a Christian woman, but you're not a pagan woman. You're a son of God. Own it. You're a man of God. Own it. But what's that mean, all y'all? It means flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. The song was great, by the way, as we sang that a moment ago. I love that song. The language is far more vanilla than I would like. Fight the good fight, right? That's, that's like the boringestest way we could say it. Um, wage the beautiful war is kind of my epic poetry way. Um, uh, don't take none from nobody with maybe all the vulgarity thrown in is another way to say it. Uh, the point is, this ain't going to be a waltz. It ain't going to be sitting back and lazing around, and yet it's going to be the kind of fight that you're glad to do, like a good sport, yeah, like a good sport. Take hold, and this doesn't come off in English either. The rest of 12 is so powerful. Take hold of the eternal life. It's like, I don't have it memorized, Zoe, but the language is so, grab it, grab eternal life, hold it. How? Say it out loud again. Walk out of here. Say hallelujah on the way home. Say Jesus has risen to yourself in the mirror once in the week. That's how. Grab it. Hold it. Speak it. It's yours. Eh? Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, to, to Timothy, he's talking about his ordination. He's talking about you were put in front of a big group of people, and we said, this guy gets apostolic powers, and he's in charge of stuff. So he's supposed to stand on that. As a pastor, I also can stand on that kind of a moment in history to look back and say they told me to run and not look back no matter what. Um, you don't have that in ordination, but you do have that in your first Lord's Supper or confirmation, whatever you want to talk about it. When you stood before the assembly and you said to everybody, I believe this is Jesus. So you can read that into this verse very faithfully. You can let your baptism be here as well. And then know that from this good confession that you've been called into, that's enlivened you and, and wakened you up, woke you in the truest sense, now you get to, again, be charged with it. The language here is, is uh, military, I guess I would say. Uh, remember, he's saying this to pastors first, but there's nothing a pastor should do that a Christian man or woman shouldn't be willing to say. Yeah. So he says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, 
and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, comma. Okay, so before he tells him what he charges him to do, he says, there's two witnesses I'm calling to account on you, Timothy, who will be the ones on judgment day that will say whether or not I'm vindicated in letting you do this task. Jesus and God the Father. That's quite, again, an ask. <laughs> yeah, That's quite a tell. Hey, son, go to school today. Do your math. I charge you in the name of God. and of it's, it's intense. But what's he charging him now? That's the point. Verse 14. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the commandment? Well, these things. What's these things? Everything he's written. What's what he's written? Everything the New Testament says for us in many other places and ways. That Christ is risen, that you are paid for, that you're immortal now, and that he won't be long anyway. Keep that hope. You, in your mind and heart, keep it unstained and free from reproach. Jesus is your God. Keep that until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. And he'll go into a doxology from there. But I don't want to skip. I, I should have said this back when I was talking about the charging in the presence of God and of Jesus. Notice how he paints Jesus. He paints Jesus as the one willing to stand, fully deserving to be crowned king and made Lord of the universe, not lifting his voice to defend himself and taking a brutal crucifixion at the hands of a godless man. Get ready, Timothy, to be like that. Not ready for that, Lord. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Each of you, where you are, is where you are. And the Lord has put you there, and these words are exactly what you need today to give you what you need today. That's contentment. That's knowing we're all walking together in the same direction but at different speeds. But we're all walking at the speed written for our lives, our hearts, our minds by the same Lord. Who, again, this doxology 15 and 16 is incredible. This is like revelation language here, right? Uh, he who is the blessed and only sovereign. I remember at seminary, uh, one of the professors in a sermon, I think he talked about how Jesus Christ is the greatest despot that there has ever been. And I don't know, maybe the younger people, that word is, is too old now. Uh, but that was a word I think I remember growing up learning somewhere, 80s, 90s. Uh, you know, Saddam Hussein was a despot who needed to be taken down from his, his tyranny, huh? And so then to hear a professor talk about Jesus Christ, the greatest despot, it's like, wait, but, but he's a good guy, not a bad guy. Well, despot doesn't mean bad guy. It just means in charge of everything. And we think that's always bad because generally men are evil. <laughs> and so when they're in charge of everything, they do bad stuff. But Jesus is not. And he is in charge of everything right now. Not maybe later, not some other time before this moment. I'm his ambassador, giving you what he says, that he's in charge. And then this language of king of kings and lord of lords. is this beautiful image from the book of Revelation where John takes it up at that moment where you see the fifth horseman. Do you remember this? I know the book's got a lot in it. There are four horsemen at the start. And these are guys who, by the way, are in the Old Testament as well. They represent all of the sin of the world since the fall, famine, war, uh, theft, and, and tearing all these things. So these guys come out and they're, they're just destroying the earth. 
And then much later in the book, there's this fifth horseman that comes out on a white horse. And this is Jesus Christ. He is risen from the dead. His eyes are like flames of fire. He brings his armies with him. A double-edged sword shoots out of his mouth, just like it did back in chapter 1 when he was talking to John in the first place. And upon him are written some things. He's got a name on his chest. He's got a name on his leg. And the name on his leg is what's here in, in 1 Timothy as well. King of kings and Lord of lords. And the name on his chest is a name that no one knows. No one knows the name on his chest. Uh, now, what's really cool about this is if you know a little military history from the Romans, you can see that St. John is playing with the way the Romans would have worn their uniforms, that every official in the Roman army would have had his family insignia, his family crest, his family name on his chest, right? So the one that you don't know, Jesus' name you don't know, is the father's last name, I guess would be the way to think about it, right? It's like the eternal crest of eternity uh, that, that no one can know or see. That's what's on Jesus' chest. Now, what's cool about the leg, which is where King of Kings and Lord of Lords will be written on him, is it's written on the leg. I can't really show you from where I am. I'll come here. Uh, so I got to pull up my skirt. <laughs> so if you're on a horse, right, and you want to be seen, you would write something right here and everybody could see it. You're up above them. It's right at eye level. That's the insignia of their station, their office, captain, you know, platoon leader or whatever. So, so here's this guy on a horse and his station is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Like you see that guy go by, you, you get on the ground. <laughs> you get on the ground. That's the guy right there. He's the guy. And that's what Paul's so excited about. Huh? That this is your God who is behind you, verse 16, who alone has immortality, but he is no longer alone. He's going to join with you in flesh and blood in a moment. Who dwells in that unapproachable light I mentioned before, uh, without taking too much time this morning uh, in that direction. It's this Trinitarian talk. It gets strongest in John's gospel in terms of where you can see what's going on. But to kind of cut through it all, the Father and the Son and the Spirit in eternity can never be approached, seen, or engaged by us in their hidden mysteriousness. We, we, would, we would perish before them. Our minds would explode. But the Son, ever the begotten representation, forward coming, that's really representation, representation's wrong, that, that's heresy. Um, the ever begotten one, is the face by which we know and see the Father, always. And that in his face, he also breathes. And that that breath, that spirit, is also a person who is God in that whole mystery of the divine trinity, who then inhabits you now. This is the, the real mark. He's in you, this Holy Spirit. He has possessed you the way demons possess people, but he's not a demon. Now, how does he do this again? By the scriptures themselves. Um, but to see that this unapproachable light, the Father's place, only Jesus has ascended there. No one else ever gets to go there. Only the hidden counsel of the Trinity is there. And then whenever we engage Jesus in the life of the world to come or Judgment Day or any of that stuff, he's coming from that place into us. He's deigning. He's humbling himself to be among us so that we can engage the Father through him. Now, with all that said, here's the other most amazing thing. No one can go into that presence except Jesus. Well, guess what you're about to eat? So every Christian is in the unapproachable light by faith alone. By faith alone. You will never go there physically. But you can know, this is when Paul says, partakers of the divine nature. It's a mystery. The mystery of godliness is this. He's ascended and you're one with him. Golly, I don't feel that way. Oh, but then again, I'm maturing. 
I'm learning to see my world as the filled, lying zombie apocalypse that it is. I'm learning to not be afraid of it because my God's older than all of it, better than all of it, more gentle than all of it. Yeah. Now he goes on after this doxology, his honor, his dominion, amen. He's going to give warnings again about wealth. Yeah. Um, and this is where it's important then as a Christian, you recognize if you live in this country, you're, you're rich. You are. Historically speaking, you're not worried about where the food is coming from this afternoon, right? Like you're fine. You're rich compared to the history of humanity. So don't get in like some kind of hook where you're going to have to be poor, where you read these verses like, well, how do I have less stuff? Minimalism is fine. I'm all for minimalism. But, but don't get hooked on that here. Here instead what he says about riches for Christians. What was bad for the non-Christian is not bad for the Christian if the Christian doesn't worship it. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Right? Don't, don't think much of your money. Think of it as what it is. Filthy lucre that God gave you to help other people with. Huh? Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Inflation, anybody? Federal Reserve, anybody? Not a fan, but that's a different thing. I don't set my hope on the dollar, I'll tell you that. Gold? Nope. Bitcoin? Nope. Who? Jesus Christ is my God. Huh? Set your certainty on God. Look, it even said that right there next. Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So this is the thing. You got a pile of gold like Scrooge McDuck, and you want to swim in it? God gave it to you. Swim in it. Just share it with the people who need it. Don't, don't act like it's all you. Don't act like you're going to die and it's going to go with you. That's foolish, right? So here, verse 18, if you got the ability, do good. Be rich in good works. There's a lot of good stuff you can only do with money. I've talked a little bit about this. I will talk more about it in the future. Here's my dream, St. Paul. Here's my dream for this corner. You want it? Here's my dream. We're going to build a parking lot. We're going to put a big, I can't even think of what it's called now, a big overhang like they got downtown. I want one out on the corner so we can put our sign up 20 feet high and they can't stop us because it's on a building. <laughs> and I put our sign up there in the corner underneath this parking lot. And I want a farmer's market there every Saturday with us helping to organize the parking that goes down to it. And then I want to work on eventually adding on a structure on the back of this building that is a private but open to the public library, seeing as they're closing the one over there. Be a great way to help the south side of the city, the west side of the city. And then as that works and the market and the library becomes a hub for what is the town because there's nothing else, well, then I want to complete this, com complete this cathedral. This is a cathedral. Did you know that? A, a cathedral is a church built in the shape of a cross. And when they built this, I, I can't say every decision made at the time was wise, but they at least thought enough to think if we build a cathedral, you'll need four of the same general shape out of stone. And we got one of them. And they made it so you can knock this wall out. You stick one just like this going that way, one going that way, another one on the other side going that way. Big dome. You could see it for miles. Oh, it's a dream. It's quite a dream, though, yeah? Yeah. I pray for it. We'll see. We'll see. More important is to be rich in the good works you can do today. You hear me on that one? That was a big dream about a long time in the future. Today. Remember that what you have been given, whatever it is, is from God. Does it hurt? It's from God. Does it feel good? It's from God. What's it for? To share. 
Even the part that hurts? Yep. That's what friends are for. Be rich in good works. Be generous, ready to share. Verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. I think what he's saying there is not that you're going to stock up more money, but that whatever you would stock up money that is given to you is for the sake of helping someone else, a human in the future. And you would see it that way. You would see it that way. Um, mm. I'm going to leave another topic aside there. Uh, taking hold of what is truly life. You can't take it with you. That line is almost entirely true. And so far as when the Bible talks this way, I don't want to go against what it said. But I want you to understand that there is something in this life that God has promised you, generally speaking, you can take with you. They're called sons and daughters. They're the only thing on this whole planet that get to go into eternal life with us, sons and daughters. And only happens when we talk to them about what we believe. Now, that can cut a lot of people real fast, I'm sure. So let me just tell you right away, again, nobody is here because God hasn't given you exactly what's in front of you today for you as a gift. Remember that. And so wherever you are and whatever you have next is so that you can shine is so that you can be salt and light. Repentance hurts. Growing hurts. I mean, growing pains. It was even a really bad show, if I remember. Goodness. Right? Anybody remember that? Jeez. Too much, too much Nickelodeon in the 80s for this poor boy. Um, uh, the treasures that you can take with you are real people. It doesn't mean you're guaranteed your kids are going to go to heaven. But I'll tell you. The promises are for you and your children. That's what it says. It says to walk along the road and talk about the promises. It says to inscribe them on your walls. Now, you don't have to be as crazy as I am. I've got them all over my house right now. And my, my kids are like, stop it. Cards everywhere, you know. Uh, but I go 100% so you can go five. Uh, I push out there so you can see the image and say, okay, okay, I see what he's doing. There's something valuable here. So, oh, Timothy, verse 20, that's you. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. You know the Bible. You know some of it. Guard it. Hold it, believe it, say it, write it down. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. I'm not going to say it says turn off the TV, but I'm going to read it again. <laughs> Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And now this. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. I hope I don't go on a crusade against TV. I don't want to. I just know that for me, getting my head out of it has been such a liberating experience. And so I can't not talk about what that feels like. What I can say is this. Um, if you don't take some time every day to have some silence, you're going to be led by the nose by whatever was loudest most recently. You have to have some silence. And in that time, open a Bible, fill the silence with the word of God. Take a note or two about what's bothering you and what you'd like to see God do. That, if you're not doing that and you're watching TV, I cannot help you ever. Straight up. Okay. They want to change your mind about God with their toys. I like the toys. Uh, I don't want you to be lost in it. Yeah. So again, I, I don't plan to go on a crusade against it. I am going to say we have to learn how to use this thing so it stops stealing our hearts. 
And at that then, we have to remember that the only thing that will pull us through any of it is not even us turning the clicker off. Instead, turn it off. Stop the babble. Stop the noise. Get off Twitter for me is what I had to do. Uh, but the reason for that is so that you're not distracted from what you're going to know now. Here in this moment. That nothing you've been brought here because of is so you can go do something more to prove it or to get there. You've been brought here because you are the son of Jesus Christ adopted into his kingdom, an heir to everlasting resurrection and the certainty that your God is with you wherever you go. That you were baptized and now you're going to be fed in order to walk out into whatever fear and anxiety you have this week, fully equipped to suffer if need be, to be content because that's what Christianity is and to know that it will pass. Better days are always coming, and in fact, more than that, why would you want them since you were born to get through this one? And then, <laughs> oh, it's funny. Oh, I got caught on the, on the pulpit coming up to do the cross, right? So it's one of those coffee spilling moments for me, right? I'm trying to be all cool on video, and this is what happens to me. But here, flush, red face, sweat, feel it. Deep breath. It's just a mistake. It's just for me to learn that I need help. Yeah. In the name of Jesus, amen.